How's everybody doing? All right. Good to uh, see Sandra back. Everything okay? Yeah? Okay, good. All right, well, this morning we want to um, to look at the kingdom uh, with regard to the outworking of God's revelation, how that works together. And uh, so let me just begin with some review. We are looking at uh, the topic of what's called dispensationalism, which is simply um, God's outworking of His revelation in different periods of times in different ways. Okay, so He He begins before the fall with Adam, and He 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 reveals Himself to Adam in a specific way, and He expects certain things from him. And the result is um, supposed to be that He obeys him, but um, but what you're going to find at the end of each one of the dispensation that there's a climactic uh, failure and that's followed by a climactic judgment. All right. So that's uh, we, we talked about seven dispensations, um, seven different periods of history beginning with Adam going all the way to, to the millennium. All right. So we talked a little bit about end times last week. Um, and, and how that, that works. But um, the three main distinctions between uh, dispensationalism and covenant theology are, first, there's a clear difference between Israel and the church. Now, that's important because when you come to the New Testament, uh, when you come to the Old Testament, you're going to have to determine how you're, how that should be interpreted, how that was intended. Was it intended for the church? Or was it intended specifically for Israel? And and there's application for the church. There, there's a difference there. All right. So the clear distinction between Israel and the church. Secondly, that there is a literal use of interpretation, a consistently literal use of interpretation throughout um, the scriptures. We'll talk about how that plays out today because we're going to come to the issue of the kingdom, and we want to see when we get to specifically the end of Revelation. Okay, is this taken literally or is this figuratively? And if we take it figuratively, then we come up with um, what we looked at last week, which is the amillennial view. What does ah mean? Not. And millennial means a thousand years. Okay, So not a thousand years, meaning no kingdom in the end because it's it's not literal. We just look at it as uh, figurative or that it's it's metaphoric for something else, referring to just kind of the struggle or, or the... I guess the uh, the uh, golden age of the Christian life type idea, we, we, we talked about that a little bit last week. The third distinction uh, that sets dispensationalism apart is that God's primary purpose is not to redeem humans, which is one of His purposes, but it is to glorify Himself. Okay, And part of God's purpose in glorifying Himself is to redeem mankind. But He's doing much more than that. That is, God takes... if you um, have been reading in your Bible reading um, in Exodus, you see that God actually can take glory in Pharaoh. How? Anybody notice that when they're reading through? How can He take glory in Pharaoh? Not redeeming him, right? Is Pharaoh a believer at all? Absolutely not, right? So how does He take glory in Pharaoh? He's showing His power through His... Uh... Right. Exodus nine fourteen through 16 talks about 
Okay, I raised you up, Pharaoh, for this very purpose, so that you would make my name known. Okay, you, wicked Pharaoh, would make my name known. So that all the world would know, including you and Israel, that I am God and there is no other. Okay, so God actually can take glory in uh, the wicked uh, by, by uh, through judgment because of their judgment. So, uh, by the way, uh, before there was man on the earth, before creation even began, God was still doing something, right? Was He existing in eternity past to redeem people? Why has He always existed? And the answer is to glorify Himself. We know that from, from lots of different passages. We, we talked about those, okay? All right. Um, we also talked about the history of dispensationalism, where it came from, who, who kind of developed this understanding of the Scriptures, and, um, and we talked about why it's so important to interpret the Bible in this way. We also talked about salvation, how uh, salvation works throughout the dispensations, that it's always by grace through faith in God, specifically, but uh, or, or generally speaking, but more specifically, it's in a, a promised Redeemer. Okay, so every dispensation following the fall of Adam, they're looking for a promised Redeemer. And that's how salvation works in every era. The only difference is, for example, between us and Noah, how did we come to faith in God compared to him, is that we have more revelation. We have a more specific understanding that it's not just a Redeemer, it's actually Jesus who is the Redeemer. And it's not just Jesus, it's actually that he died and that he he rose for us, that He lives for us, and that He's, he's going to, to um, reunite uh, Himself with us or unite our, Himself with us. Last week, we looked at the three main views of dispensationalism, uh, of the end times, I should say, and that was premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. Okay, those are just all big words that mean Christ's return will come pre, before the kingdom, Okay, that's the way we understand it, based on a literal interpretation of Scriptures. The second was that there is no kingdom. That's the second interpretation of the end times. And the third is that Christ comes after the kingdom. That we are living and working like America uh, you know, has, has had this free society. We're trying to get the whole world like this. Remember we talked about this? That we're trying to lead the whole entire globe into a, a, um, a golden age of society which will bring in the best out of humans and so on. Um, I, I think that's a faulty understanding of, of history and a faulty understanding of the Scriptures that comes to that view. But, uh, but that's the way many, many uh, even well-meaning believers actually believe. Pastor, yes, sir. That was the age of enlightenment. Yeah, yeah, the Enlightenment period there in the, what is that, the eight, 17th century? Um, yeah, yeah, really. Um, it when when this postmillennial view came about, um, it was uh, Jonathan Edwards was really in his element. I mean, he was he was at the center of what of uh, the the gospel being spread throughout the the United States, at least the eastern coast there that was um, uh, that was coming over from Europe, and uh, and part of his understanding was that that we are somehow moving towards this golden age. 
And uh, and with that, there were even non-believers that started to see this sort of thing and they started to say, you know what, we need to make sure that this kind of idea gets spread throughout the whole world that we're trying to bring everybody into a, a golden age. But the problem with that is that that we need Christ to come in order to purify. And uh, you know how Christ purifies ultimately? It's through judgment. It's through destroying the wicked who don't belong there. And that's what's going to happen at the end of the tribulation. That's when the kingdom will come. And, um, and that's when we will enjoy the best times on this earth with Christ as King. Alright, so we looked at Revelation chapter 20. We saw how um, a thousand years was repeated several times in those few first few verses. And that speaks to the fact that the, the writer there, John, is trying to show that this is not metaphoric. This is not unimportant stuff. This is actually a 1,000-year reign of Christ as King. Um, but further support for the end times come from our understanding of the kingdom concept. Our understanding of the kingdom concept. Um, the basis for the, the kingdom of God concept comes from our understanding of the kingdom. So turn to First Chronicles chapter 29 with me. Okay, and we'll see the three features of the kingdom. You've got them on your handout. I just put them up on the screen as well. But, but as we're reading through, you'll see these three. And this is just this is not just um, I'm not just talking about millennial kingdoms. I'm talking about any kingdom at all it has these three elements to it. Okay, so if you want to talk about um, uh, the uh, Roman Empire, you want to talk about um, you know any kingdom in history, then then you're going to see these three things. Chapter 29. Verse 11. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head Overall, okay. So the first thing that we see is that that a kingdom has a ruler. Okay, who is the ruler that David's talking about in this specific kingdom? Verse eleven. What does it say? God. Right, the Lord God. So in this specific kingdom that David is talking about, we'll talk about what this kingdom is. But um, in this specific one, he's talking about. Uh, God as the ruler. The second element is that it has subjects. All right. So who are the subjects in verses 11 and 12 in this kingdom? I'm sorry, I read verses 10 and 11. Let me read verse 12. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Okay, so, so in verse 11, who are the subjects of God's kingdom? Exactly. See that in the middle of the verse? Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Okay, so what all would that include? Everything. Alright. I mean, would it include just humans? Okay, everything. We could say everything that is not God. 
the best definition for that, that I can remember from when I was in seminary is from my professor, my um, theology professor, Dr. McCune. He said that, that creation is everything that's not God, or we could say the universe is everything that is not God. Um, and that, that says a lot because it tells us what everything is. We don't want to exclude anything from that, that word everything. So we have God as the, the, the uh, ruler. We have the subjects as basically all of the heavens and the earth. And then the third aspect is that there is a realm in which to rule. That God actually exercises, verse 12 says um, in the middle of the verse, and you rule over all. Okay, so if these three, these three features are true about any kingdom, and specifically the one we're talking about, then, then um, God has a kingdom. Okay, um, and the basis is His sovereign rule, that He is sovereign over all, that He has the power. Now, we have to distinguish now uh, which type of kingdom we're talking about. Okay, because in the scriptures there are three types passages, by the way, and I'm going to call on you to read some of these, so so be ready. Psalm 103, verse 19. <clears throat> some texts some suggest that um, the kingdom is already in existence, and it has been from long ago. Alright, look at Psalm 103, and someone read for us verse 19. All right, so so the psalmist here is saying it's already done. It's already happened. It's it's happening right now. He is sovereign. He is ruler over all. So with regard to time, it, there there are many texts. This is just one example, but there are many texts that talk about God ruling over all since the beginning of creation. All right, but then there are other texts that talk about the kingdom being future. Turn to Daniel chapter 2. All right, we're trying to figure out why there's uh, why the kingdom is talked about in two different ways in the scriptures. Daniel chapter two, verse forty-four. Would someone read that? All right, so. This one seems to talk about a kingdom that is still future. That they verse the beginning of the verse says will set up a kingdom. Okay, turn over to chapter seven. Chapter seven, and would someone read verses thirteen and fourteen? All right, verse 27. So I want to read that. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. 
his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. All right. So Daniel's talking about a kingdom that will be future. Verse 13 says that that the Ancient of Days is going to give the keys of this kingdom to the Son of Man. And this will not be a kingdom like the other earthly kingdoms that have been in the past, but it will be one that will last forever. We saw that in several verses here in Daniel. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus was teaching His disciples how to pray? What did He say about the kingdom in that verse to pray for? Your kingdom come. So He's saying, to, he's saying you disciples, when you pray, this is how you ought to pray. God, may your kingdom come. That's the idea. May your kingdom come. That is still future, right? We understand this. There's, there seems to be a difference, a distinction between a kingdom that is already set up that God has rule over all things and there's another aspect in which there still is a kingdom that's going to be set up. Okay, So that's the first distinction. All right, The second distinction is with regard to scope. With regard to scope. That is, the realm of the kingdom. Some texts present the kingdom as universal in its realm. Remember 1 Chronicles 29, 11, and 12? What was the realm? What was the, the subject? Who were the subjects? Everybody. Everything in the heavens and the earth, we said, right? And that includes everything. So, um, turn to uh, Psalm 135. We'll look at two verses to support this point. That some texts see the kingdom as universal in its realm, that nothing is outside of the realm of this kingdom. Psalm 135, and would someone read verse 6 for us? Alright, verse 5 talks about um, that the Lord is great and He's above all gods, that there's nothing that God can't do within His, we could call it His kingdom, that He has charge over all things, that He rules and He can do whatever He pleases because it's His kingdom. Alright, now turn over to uh, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verse 24. All right, verse 25 goes on to talk about how he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. But the point here that, that we're trying to notice is, is God's scope or the, the realm of his subjects. And that is, like First Chronicles 29, it is the entire heavens and earth. Okay, so some passages, several passages in the Scripture talk about God's universal realm, that there's nothing outside of, of his power, of his control, uh, outside of his kingdom, we could say. But then other texts... Um, talk about the realm of of a kingdom being earthly only. All right, so turn back to uh, Daniel chapter two. Back to Daniel chapter two. All right, when you see the the, in verse 35, when you see the stone here, um, we've I've kind of mentioned this in Sunday mornings when we were talking about the different empires that are being set up. But this stone here is the one that will crush all the previous kingdoms, that it will overtake them. 
Okay, so that's what we're talking. We're talking about a kingdom here. So, can someone read verse thirty-five? Okay, so this one is more limited in its scope. What's happening here is these previous empires that have been set up, as uh, talked about with regard to clay and gold and, and bronze and so on, those are all crushed like a, like a huge statue. The picture that Daniel's giving is it's like a statue that's been set up and it's crushed by this stone. And this stone becomes this kingdom that fills the whole earth. But, it is, but what we're trying to see here is that it's limited to the earth only. All right, now look down to verse 44. And uh, verse 44 says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. That's what it's talking about in verse 35. But it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true. And its interpretation is trustworthy. Okay, so Daniel helps give us an interpretation. So we're not we're not taking a um, a non-literal interpretation of this of this event that Daniel's talking about. He's he's explaining a dream that he had and then an interpretation of it, and he actually gives the interpretation. And and so this kingdom that's talked about here is one that is only earthly in scope. Now I'll turn to Zechariah, the second to last book in your Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 14. We're trying to see how the kingdom is talked about, not in a universal, that is, including every single thing in the entire universe, everything that's not God, but also, but, but this kingdom is talking about specifically just um, one part of that universe, and that is the earth only. Chapter 14, verse 4. Someone read that. All right, then verse 9, Mike. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And that day the Lord will be the only one, and His name the only one. All right, so this is, um, this is similar language to what we've seen in Revelation, that when, when, Christ, uh, when, when this earthquake happens, which apparently is Christ standing on this mountain, the, the mountain is going to be split into different parts. On uh, Revelation, it says that it's split into three parts. Um, uh, here, it said it's split specifically into two parts, but I don't think those necessarily have to contradict one another. The point we're trying to make here, verse nine, is that the Lord will be king over, does it say, over all the heavens and the earth? Hey, no, just just over the earth. Okay, so here's what we're we're seeing so far is that that there's a distinction in time. We see that the God is has always been over a kingdom that fills up the entire earth, but there's also a future kingdom that that's specifically for the earth only. So the third distinction that we need to see is that it, that of administration. Okay, I couldn't fit administration in here, so I just gave you a, 
in a brief. Um, administration. Some texts present the kingdom as God ruling directly over all parts of the universe, that is, without a human mediator. Okay, now, uh, we're, we're constantly back in Daniel, but Daniel's a great book to, to study. I can't wait to, to preach through it sometime. But Daniel chapter 4 with me. Daniel chapter 4. Here we have the story of Nebuchadnezzar who thinks he is supreme over all the earth. Remember, he says he's over a specific kingdom. What kingdom is that, by the way? Babylon, right? Babylon. Okay, and he says that he is basically God to the world, that he is uh, he, he cannot be done away with. Daniel chapter 4, verse 17 says, This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes okay so again we see that god is the one who is the ruler he's trying to show nebuchadnezzar the point that we we see here is that god's not using a specific mediator as his ruler okay so so in the, in terms of its administration we could call this a direct ruling, that God directly rules, that I am the king. Chapter uh, 4, verse 34. But, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, okay, Nebuchadnezzar is judged for a, a period of time and has to eat grass like, a, like an animal. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored who lives Him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from one generation or from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, "What have you done?" Um, and that, at that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out, so I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exult, and honor the King of Heaven, for all His works are true, and His ways just, and He's able to humble those who walk in pride. Alright, so turn back to uh, Psalm chapter 2. So in in this kingdom that we looked at in Daniel chapter 4, it appears to us that, that there is no mediator that God uses, that He directly rules. But now what we're going to see in Psalm chapter 2 is that God is going to rule indirectly, that is, through a mediator. You understand what a mediator is, right? It's a, a person who goes between, uh, someone like Job would call like an umpire or someone that can stand in the middle. He was, he was uh, in a sense, complaining. Like, who is there to stand between man and God? Who could possibly do that? I can't argue with you you're the god of the universe but but you also in a sense and this i think he's saying this in a reverent way you can't relate with me because you're not man and what psalm 2 talks about is in this specific kingdom that there is going to be a human mediator that god does still rule uh, but he does it through a specific mediator could someone read verses 6 through 9 
only thing for that inheritance. I can work hard for the earth for thy possession. And thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, and thou shalt dash them in pieces like a pottery vessel. All right. So who specifically is this mediator that's going to be ruling on behalf of God? Okay? Uh, we, we know it is Christ. The psalmist wouldn't have understood that fully. He would have understood it as a redeemer, probably. But verse 7 says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. I think this helps shape who this seed of the woman would actually be. Remember Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent? And they just were expecting, okay, some person's going to come in the human race and be kind of a king par excellence, the king of all kings type guy. Not necessarily God Himself, but here it says, you are My Son, and today I have begotten you. That God, um, not that Christ was being um, created at that point, but the idea is that Christ is being established as God's King, as God's mediator, and that's how it's going to be in this other kingdom. Okay, so we have a dilemma here because we have in the Scriptures two types of kingdoms being talked about. We have one kingdom that is universal in its rule. That is, includes the heavens and the earth, everything. Then we have another kingdom that's talked about only on the earth. We have a kingdom that includes um, every single living thing. That it, that, it, um, that, that it doesn't exclude anything. And then there's another kingdom that only has... Uh, earth as its realm. And then thirdly, we have a kingdom that um, where God rules directly and then a kingdom where God rules through a mediator. Okay, so how do we make sense of all this? How, how do we explain these distinctions? And um, what we should understand is that the Scriptures never do contradict themselves because while they do have, uh, what is it, 40 different human authors, they have one divine author. Right? God is the one who ultimately wrote the Scriptures. And God is truth. Because God is truth, John 17, 17, He cannot contradict Himself. So, the Scriptures as a whole do not contradict themselves. Whenever we see things that look like they contradict themselves, they are only that. They are apparent contradictions. And so, that's what we have here as well. So, here's a solution. That we actually have two different kingdoms that are talked about. First, we have a universal kingdom. We have a universal kingdom. God says in Acts 17 that I rule over the entire heavens and earth. That, that no one can stay my hand. No one can, can thwart my plan. Um, and so, what we see throughout the history of mankind is God ruling in His overall, His, His vast universe, His kingdom. His universal kingdom. And He does that in different ways, but, but He often does it directly, that, that He can make judgments on people as He pleases. Um, and uh, sometimes He does use mediators within this universal kingdom, but what we should understand is that there is a universal kingdom. In other words, there's, there's no other creature that can thwart God's kingdom or do something opposed to His kingdom because He is the King. It is His realm. It is His subjects. And He will do as He pleases. All right. The second kind of kingdom is what's called a theocratic kingdom. Does anyone know what a theo theocracy is? Okay. It is a, it, it's God's rule through uh, a mediator. Okay. That's the word theo you see at the beginning is actually a Greek word for God. 
And then uh, ocracy there is, is a kingdom or ruling. God rules through his mediator. So you had a theocracy in the Old Testament. You had um, God ruling through kings. And, um, and uh, there, were, there was a spirit who came on these kings in a special way that's called the theocratic anointing. That is God's special rule through these kings and uh, God leading his people in that way. So, what that means is, if we have two separate kingdoms, that gives us several indications about what uh, about the differences between these kingdoms. And so now what we want to do is we want to see how these relate to each other. Okay, how does the theocratic kingdom relate to the universal kingdom? First, the theocratic kingdom is a subset of the universal kingdom. So, that means... When God rules through His theocratic mediator, His, His, His appointed leader, that doesn't mean that He takes His hands off of the reins of His universal kingdom, right? It's not as if these are opposed to each other. Like you have the, the earthly theocratic kingdom and then you have God's universal one. It doesn't God still have control over this earthly kingdom no matter who the ruler is, who the mediator is? Okay. So the theocratic kingdom, if you want to think about it in terms of circles, the, the universal kingdom is the larger outside circle and the theocratic kingdom is the smaller inside one. God still controls everything outside here, but He also controls everything inside here. He controls it all. Okay. The second implication between a theocracy of, of how the theocracy and the universal kingdom relate is that the um, theocratic kingdom is restricted to God's rule over the earth restricted to God's rule over the earth. That is, it doesn't include the entire universe. Okay, I think that's clear from those passages that we looked at. There will be a kingdom on earth. Number three, theocratic kingdom always has the indirect rule of God. And the key word there is always. It always has the indirect ruling of God. That is, through a mediator. God, in His theocratic kingdom, God never rules directly. Okay, he, he rules through a mediator. We'll see how that plays out when we get to the millennial kingdom. Um, and I think you see where I'm going with this. Number four, there have only been two fully established kingdoms. Okay, or I should say, there only will be two fully established kingdoms. One is before the fall. When God ruled through Adam, remember what Adam's responsibility was? Okay, it was to, to have dominion over all the earth. You are my mediator, my theocratic ruler over the rest of, of creation. And, uh, and then obviously the last one will be in the millennial kingdom where he rules through whom? Through Christ, right? Christ as the king. Good. All right, so... Um, the next implication is a little bit, um, a little bit more, um, a little bit deeper, I guess you could say, because what we need to understand is that that Satan has temporary rule. Um, that that he, the current age, the current world, okay, and, and you got to understand, in a sense, belongs to Satan. Now there are several passages that talk about this and. Perhaps we should just uh, turn to these. Why don't we? Why don't we do that? Luke chapter four. 
I want to show you what I'm talking about because this is how the Scriptures speak of it. I'm not trying to say that God is out of control. Remember, even uh, no matter what happens within the universe, God is in control of that big circle, that universal kingdom. So even if Satan has temporary rule over the kingdom of this world, then uh, that doesn't mean that God is out of control. Luke chapter 4, verse 5 says, And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms. This is Satan tempting Jesus. He led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Now, if Satan didn't have some sense, some semblance of control over the, the kingdoms of this world, how could this be a temptation? I mean, why would Jesus ever be tempted by this if Satan didn't really have control, if he's just lying about his control? And he's not lying about his control. The point is he's actually received it from God, that God has actually granted it to him, that, that you have a, a semblance of control. Okay, You've got to understand that in the terms of God's sovereignty, that he still has ultimate control. He's not letting go of the reins again. But, but Satan's offering this to Jesus saying, listen, you know all that hard road of suffering that you have ahead of you? I can eliminate all of that. If you will just bow down to me now, I will give you the kingdom. Now, whether or not he would follow through on that promise is not the point. The point is that he has some semblance of control over the kingdom of this world. All right, turn over to John chapter um, 12. John chapter 12. Jesus is talking about what His death will accomplish. And in verse 31, He says, Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler, small r, of this world will be cast out. Speaking of Satan. Alright, so so there is coming a time when Satan will be moved away from his reign as ruler. I wish we could turn to all these other ones. Do I have these listed for you? Yeah, I do. Okay. I would encourage you to read those other passages. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul says that the God, small g, of this age, this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot accept the things of God. So there is a sense in which Satan has temporary rule over the rule, the world. But the good news is, that it's only temporary. Because we know, we know this is the fact because Genesis 3.15 says that the, the seed of the, the woman will crush the seed of the serpent or will crush the, the serpent's head, I should say. Romans 16.20 says, Paul encourages believers there by saying, shortly, the God of peace will crush the head of Satan. And, um, and, and it's only a matter of time. Okay, so we don't have to fear that Satan is currently the king of this world, small k, that he is the god, small g, of this world, the ruler, small r, of this world. We don't have to fear because it's only for for a limited time. All right, so the importance of all this is that... um, uh, Let me just make a point before we move on here. The importance of of establishing a kingdom is this. Okay, if this world were to end without God restoring it to what it once was, 
if if this world were to end with Satan reigning as king, then God would have been defeated. Because that would show that God can't restore the earth to his mediatorial kingdom, which he first had. Okay, the mediatorial kingdom I'm talking about. Mediatorial, so I'm talking about God ruling through a mediator. If God can't do that, then that shows that Satan has won. Okay, uh, God would have had to destroy the entire earth with Satan and all the sin in order to set up his rule. But, but what God is saying is, no, I am going to win the victory. And how is he going to do that? The only explanation is for God to rule through Jesus Christ in an earthly kingdom. You see why this is so important? If you have an amillennial perspective, that is, no kingdom, or that somehow Christ rule, He doesn't really rule in the kingdom at all, the postmillennial view, then what you said is that God couldn't ultimately defeat Satan. Uh, at least He couldn't bring back the earth to where it once was. And so the kingdom concept is very important. Now, now, in order to understand how this all works and plays itself together throughout history, if you look in the Old Testament, what God was doing is saying, listen, if you obey my, my commands, I will set up the kingdom. Okay? They had this kingdom ready to be established. And if they would have done all that God said for them to do, then, then, then the kingdom would have been good for them. But the problem is they were sinners and they needed a better king. They, they found out that all their kings were, were corrupt, not not because they're all unbelievers, but because they weren't perfect. And you need a perfect king to rule God's earthly kingdom. And that's what's going to happen when Christ comes. All right, so turn to Revelation chapter um, 19. We'll go through this quickly. We looked at some of these verses last week. The chronology of Revelation helps support the literal kingdom. Okay, at the end, uh, uh, first of all, in chapter 6 through 18, where we are on Sunday mornings, um, you have God attacking the, attacking the kingdom of Satan. So Satan has his rule. He is the God, small g, of this world. And, and so what God does is he, through a series of judgments, boom, 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 he starts attacking Satan's kingdom. And it's as if Satan's standing up against the wall, indefensible, or unable to defend what God is doing, right? And, and, um, and then at the end of chapter 19, we won't re- read all these verses, but I'll just point your attention to there. What you have is Jesus actually coming now, and he brings the final blow to Satan. That he, uh, he sends him to the abyss to be imprisoned for a thousand years, and then at the end of that, he brings on the, uh, the great white throne judgment and sends him to the lake of fire. Okay, and you see that in verses, 20, uh, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 20. Satan is removed from the earth. I think I need to give you some blanks here, don't I? All right, Jesus destroys the remaining forces. End of chapter 19. He destroys the remaining forces. Then Satan is removed from the earth. Satan is removed from the earth. 21-3. Then Christ reigns as mediator over all the earth. It's not metaphoric. This is... This is uh, how what actually happens. And all this happens when? Notice verse 11 of chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who sat on it from, whom, who, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. 
And then what you find is that the entire earth is destroyed. Chapter 21, a new heaven, a new earth. So the point is the chronology of Revelation point to a literal kingdom. That is, this all happens before, that's important, before the earth is destroyed. That all happens where Christ destroys Satan's kingdom. We'll talk about this morning, uh, Revelation chapter 17, and next week, Revelation chapter 18, where his kingdom is destroyed. And, and Christ comes and in His place and rules as, as a good king. And uh, this is what all of history is leading to. Then comes the... Um, let's see. Yeah, sorry about that. I think that's destruction. Then comes the destruction of this present earth. Okay, so... We looked at a lot of text this morning. We, we tried to establish that, that um, okay, this dispensational understanding is very important to our understanding of the end times, to the kingdom, the kingdom concept throughout the Scriptures, seeing that there's two different types of kingdoms that are often talked about in Scripture. And one of the pinnacle doctrines in all of Scripture is the kingdom of God and, and how He has, from the beginning, have, has been setting up this kingdom. If you want to get a good summary of this, I put the the notes or the um, the uh, little commercial plug down there at the bottom. Dr. Sam Dawson did a series this summer on the kingdom of God, and he started with the beginning of mankind, and he moved all the way through. He made it, I think, through the epistles. Didn't make it all the way to Revelation like he wanted to, but we only had four weeks to do it. So, um, I I know we have three of those on the the um, on the website, so I'd encourage you to go there and listen to those this week. That would be a really good help for your understanding of this um, some more. And uh, and I think I also have copies of, of the handouts that Dr. Dawson gave. Um, if they're not on there, there are some out here on the table, and I can also get you some copies if, if, um, if those aren't the ones you need. All right. Any questions or comments? Makes sense. We got a we're working towards or, or looking forward to at least a future kingdom when Christ will reign over um, the believing community, and that will include us, Israel, tribulation saints, all believers of all time. All right, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you that you are working uh, throughout history and throughout the scriptures to reveal yourself uh, through your Son, the pinnacle of all of life. He came once, and that was great to see His coming, but it will not be as glorious as this uh, next coming when He reigns uh, unopposed, when He shows His glory for who He is, reveals Himself in, as, uh, as, uh, in a way that, that no one be able to question, that He is, he is God and, and and that He must be worshipped. And we long for that day, and we pray that His coming would, would, uh, would be soon, and uh, so that Your kingdom will be established. And we thank You for our part in that, that, that we are working to um, see people come to a saving knowledge of Him so that they can also enter into that kingdom as well. And we pray that um, You'd help us to be established ourselves and that we would work to pass on the truth of Your Word to... Uh, further generations so that for ages to come people will be able to praise you because you are the king of all kings. 
We pray for our uh, help in this following service that we would give our attention to your word and be able to be changed by it. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.